Once again, I invite you to have your Bibles handy. We will be going to uh, a number of passages of Scripture this evening as we speak on the concept of biblical masculinity. We will find ourselves uh, in the Old Testament for a good portion of the evening. It is no secret that biblical masculinity is in a crisis in the Western world, whereas there has always been a pretty sharp divide between the concepts of masculinity as the world has understood them and the concepts of masculinity as the church has understood them. In recent years, the very essence of masculinity on any front has come under attack. By any number of measurements, this should not surprise us. As society gets further and further away from God, as they attempt at nearly any cost to cast off the elements of God's design, masculinity, which features the will to protect and to provide, to conquer, to overcome, to be driven by objectivity, these things have become distasteful to society. To this end, masculinity has in many ways been dying away. In the West, this culture has pushed young men to become increasingly more effeminate. It is apparent in the way men dress. It is apparent in their emotional outlook on life. It is apparent in their unwillingness to lead, to stand on principle, to harness their aggression towards positive ends, among any number of other symptoms and problems within masculinity today. And this is creating a void in culture where it's not just that there are certain men who behave badly, but the term toxic masculinity, as it's been floating around over the past uh, couple of years, has been applied to anything that effectively defines what a man has characteristically been known to be. There are most certainly, as we talk about culture, deeply evil and wrong elements that culture the unbelieving world has designated and called masculinity. However, in the church, there has never been a question. The church is absolutely different from the rest of the culture. The church has never defined masculinity in the way the unbelieving world has. And yet, even in the church, where masculinity does not carry with it these traits, or ought not by biblical command, masculinity is yet under attack. And this is really where the deepest danger lies. I'm not as concerned that the elements of masculinity as the world has defined them are under attack. But when we see the elements of masculinity whether in culture or in the church that are biblically rooted are being rooted out, we find a problem that must be addressed. When we talk about masculinity, we are talking about those traits that God has called a man to have based upon the design elements that God has given to men which He has thus equipped us with in order that we might be Leaders, fathers, and the protectors of, of society, the protectors of our families, to guide the church as God has called us to guide the church. The elements that form the root of what it means to be a man in the Lord. In the Old Testament, a phrase that comes up somewhat regularly that would define the Old Testament concept of masculinity was the phrase, mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. Not every man in the Old Testament is labeled as such, and one might be surprised when this label happens to come up in the Old Testament. But what we are looking at this evening, as we walk through various examples of what biblical masculinity looks like, are men that the Bible would term to be mighty men of valor. Men that exhibit characteristics that we as godly men ought to appropriate into our lives and ought to define masculinity by. And they're not going to be the characteristics that the unbelieving world would define masculinity by. They're not going to be 
carnal characteristics. They're going to be characteristics that exemplify true manhood in the most biblical sense. And I'd like to begin with us talking about the man Moses and the characteristic that Moses exemplifies. Perhaps best of all, he had a number of them, but the characteristic that we see Moses exemplify is selflessness and yieldedness, or at least what I'd like to show you through him this evening. Moses is perhaps in some ways a better case study of just pure leadership than of masculinity as a whole. But in many ways, of course, we see those two overlap heavily in the scripture. An important part of biblical masculinity is moral leadership. Men, if you want to be a man of God, if you want to understand what a man of God is, a a man of God is a moral leader. Moses was a very strong man. He was a very capable man. He was a good leader. He was principled. He was godly. But my favorite example of Moses, as it relates to the concepts of what it means to be a godly man, is found in an example of leadership and selflessness from Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses has been on Mount Sinai receiving from God the Ten Commandments. Aaron is down with the people who, after a significant number of days... Uh, believe that Moses must be dead or something. And so they decide that they want Aaron to make them a god that they can worship. And Aaron, uh, he gets jewelry from them and he forges a golden calf for them to worship. He says, These be thy gods, O Israel, that took, took thee out of the land of Egypt. He says, Gather yourselves together. Tomorrow we'll have a feast unto the Lord. And they were going to worship on an altar that Aaron had built for this golden calf. He was going to worship this golden calf who he called the Lord. So Moses is up on the mount. Joshua is up there with him. And God cuts short the meeting with Moses, telling him, as God is giving Moses these Ten Commandments, written in a tablet form, telling Moses that the people had utterly corrupted themselves and that Moses needed to get down to them. God is very angry, and he tells Moses in Exodus 32 that he is going to destroy the nation of Israel and that he is going to raise up a new people from Moses rather than continue to... to lead the nation of Israel. And at this time, Moses, not knowing the fullest extent of what was going on at the bottom of that mountain, Moses intercedes for the people. He appeals to God's mercy and the defense of God's great name, and he asks God not to do this thing. God repents of the evil that he thought to do, and God chooses instead to show this mercy on behalf of Moses. So then Moses heads down the mountain, As they're going down the mountain, Moses and Joshua are together. And Joshua says, it sounds like there's war in the camp. And Moses says, that's not war, that's singing. It's probably a problem if your songs and the sounds of war cannot be distinguished. And they find that the people are dancing in pagan worship. They're unclothed. It is abominable in every sense of the word. Moses is furious. He breaks the tables of stone that the Lord had given him upon which were written the Ten Commandments. He causes the people to be severely punished. He melts down the idol. He puts it into their drinking water. He forces them to drink it. He asks, is anyone on the Lord's side? And the Levites take the Lord's side and they go and they slay any number of the people. And it is here at this point, after learning the tremendous gravity of their sin, that Moses understands the tremendous anger of the Lord against these people. And we pick up thus in Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. The Bible says this, For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. 
Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses calls the people to repentance, calls for them to prepare themselves and consecrate themselves for the day that the Lord would intercede, for Moses would intercede before the Lord for them. And notice what he says. He goes and he acknowledges the people's sin, recognizing now the tremendous, I mean, he had already interceded for the people, right? He had already on the mount before asked the Lord not to destroy the people, not to disinherit them, which is exactly what God said he was going to do. God said, I'm going to disinherit this people. Moses interceded. God had regarded that. And now Moses, it seems as though Moses had no capacity to have even imagined just how bad things had gotten in the 40 or so days he was up on that mount. How bad could it be? How bad could they have corrupted themselves? They literally forged an idol and were dancing and were were singing and in a state of nakedness around this idol in 40 days after hearing the voice of God and seeing the fire of God on the mountain. So Moses is, is extremely broken here. And notice the uniqueness of his prayer. He says, Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, dash, dash. A very interesting prayer in that Moses gives the if, but he doesn't give the then. He doesn't complete his sentence. He says, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and then in your Bibles you see a dash. And he says, but if not. Moses never gives the second half of that statement. God had said he would forgive. Perhaps the idea there being, if thou wilt forgive their sin, well. But Moses perhaps is having a hard time even contemplating that at this point. It was easy enough for him to intercede when he didn't know what the people had done. But now he knows what the people had done. Is God still going to be merciful? Moses loves this people. Moses led this people out of Egypt. How much does Moses love these people? What kind of a leader is Moses? What kind of a man is Moses? How far would Moses have to go in his own mind, in his own line of thinking, for God to forgive this people? Well, God, if you will forgive them, but if not, blot me out of thy book, which thou hast written. If you won't forgive God for my intercessions before, blot me out of the book and keep this people well. Now, when we talk about attributes that undergird the character of a biblical man, we talked about husbands this morning being yielded. This selflessness, this yieldedness, this kind of leadership, this kind of sacrifice undergirds the character of a biblical man. Any man would do well to consider the example of a man who in his heart and mind would give everything for the sake of those for whom he is responsible. The measure of a man is not in how much he can get for himself. The measure of a man is not about how capable he is of coming out on top when others fail or falter. Biblical masculinity is not measured on the basis of strength and prosperity at the expense of others. Biblical masculinity is measured on the basis of the strength and prosperity that he has on behalf of others. Moses was a man of selflessness. Moses was a man of yieldedness to the extent that he would have given of himself for the sin of the people. The book there is the book of life. When the Bible speaks of those being blotted out of the Lord's book. Paul would say a similar thing, would he not, in Romans? For I could wish myself accursed for my people, my brethren according to the flesh. 
Naturally, God's character cannot allow such a substitution. A sinful man simply cannot bear the sin of another sinful man. A man bears his own sin. The soul that sinneth shall die. The only man who's ever been able to bear the sin of another man was the perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And indeed, Jesus would one day. But the heart of Moses to do this is the heart that our men ought to carry into every aspect of life. A selfless dignity, a willingness to spend and be spent for those of whom God has called for us to love and protect. This is a measure by which biblical masculinity can be gauged. See, the world says masculinity is about getting for yourself. The world says masculinity is the strong man, the powerful man, the man who might be willing to run over others on his way to the goal. That's not what the Bible says a man is. Moses was a mighty man of valor. He was a man of selflessness and of yieldedness. Let's talk about Joshua, who was a man of principle and godliness. As I just mentioned, Joshua took over from Moses when Moses died, and Joshua was responsible to lead the nation into the promised lands, and he did so. He led them, he fought for them, he fought with them. Joshua, as was Moses before him, was a mighty man in every sense of the word, he was a warrior. He was a strong man. He was also an obedient man. He was a man very similar to Moses, Moses being his mentor. He showcased the qualities of strength and honor, especially in his dealings with the Gibeonites. When the Gibeonites had deceived the nation, deceived him, and after making that vow, he stood by that vow and protected those Gibeonites as a man of integrity would. But it is at the end of his days that I would like to focus on as we consider the attributes of Joshua that reflect an example of biblical masculinity. The nation had spent many years conquering the promised land to this point. Some of the tribes had done better than others. Some of them had not done very well at all. The tribe of Dan did not do very well. The tribe of Judah had not taken nearly as much land as they should have. And yet at the end of these days, the people of the land were generally at rest. The nation was now in a general place of security. And at the end of Joshua's days, he gave them a message from the Lord. We read in Joshua 24, beginning in verse 2, and the Bible says this, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father, Abraham, from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also, and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them, and afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and ye came unto the sea. And the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen into, unto the Red Sea. I skip to verse 13. The Bible says, And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye, ye built not, and ye dwelt in them, of the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted not, uh, which ye planted not, do ye eat. So God summarizes through Joshua all of the blessings and goodness which God has shown to the nation, ending with the very blessings into which they had at that time, that they were eating of the vineyards and of the fields that they had not planted. They were eating of the fruit of others' labor. God had run out those tribes when they had participated in those efforts by faith, and they were now living off of the fruit of other people's labors. And of this, God then says to them, as he had many times before in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. So the message God has for the people is the message he's been giving to them since the beginning. 
Now that you're settled into the land, fear God. Serve Him in sincerity. Serve Him in truth. Serve Him in purity. Serve the Lord as He deserves to be served. Now, in any number of concepts within the context of the unbelieving world, this might be somewhat demasculating. A man says, who are you to tell me what to do? In fact, as it is, the idea of a man tends to come with the idea of independence. I have to be independent. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going to show any weakness. I'm not going to show any mercy. These are elements of the misguided concepts of masculinity as they are in the world today. The idea that you show a chink in your armor, and there are certainly contexts, particularly among men, where any weakness is exploited. <laughs> when I go into the jail and I talk to men, I often find them in tears, but they had better have those tears dried up and their eyes had better not be red before they leave me. Because if they go into the prison cell with tears in their eyes, it's not going to go well for them. It's a sign of weakness. And in the jail setting, weakness is not something you want to exhibit. And men are not better for believing that's a characteristic of masculinity. Men are not better for that. How the world sees masculinity. That the masculine man is the free man. The independent man always pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, who does what he wants when he wants, and by all means. We know that God gives us the right to make such decisions, but consider the man Joshua. Joshua was not a weak man. He had fought in many battles. He had stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemies of Israel. He had led them across the Jordan. He watched great walls of cities fall at his feet. And this mighty man of valor says this in Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in the land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's life was a life defined by true courage. The kind of courage where Joshua goes down to fight a battle against a much heavier enemy and Moses puts his rod up in the air and as long as Moses' hands are up in the air with that rod, they're winning and when his arms get tired and he sets them down, they start to lose. And Joshua is completely at the mercy of the Lord's blessing based upon Moses getting those hands up in the air. Aaron and Hur had to stand next to him and hold those arms up in order to keep his arms up until the setting of the sun. Joshua, the kind of man who is fighting battles for the Lord and asks the Lord to make the sun stand still so that the job can be finished that he's doing. Joshua was a man of courage, a man of faith, and in this moment, he leads his family in the most courageous way possible. He stands upon principle. He doesn't regard what others are going to think. He's not going to wait for someone else to step up and say, yeah, that's probably a good idea for the Lord. He says, I don't care what you think, what you're going to do. Of course, he wants them to do what's right. But whether you're going to do what's right or not, nation, as for me, as for my house, as for my family, we are going to serve the Lord. He was a man of principle, he was a man who stood up for what he knew what was right. Regardless of what you do, I know what is right and I know what I'm going to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A mark of biblical masculinity. You want to talk about true courage. True courage is not being able to face a guy down that's bigger than you and punch him in the nose. True courage is being able to say, I'm not going to do that because God has told me otherwise. Because I am loyal to a higher master. In a world which marks success 
based upon feelings and perceptions. The man of God stands upon the word of God and says, I don't care what others are going to do. I don't care what others are going to think of me, what they're going to say about me, how they're going to treat me. It doesn't matter if I am mocked. It doesn't matter if I'm scorned. It doesn't matter if I am the only one swimming against the tide. As for me and my house, those that are under my leadership, we are going to serve the Lord. I know what is true and I'm going to do what is right and I'm going to lead others to do the same. A biblical man takes that tenacity that others use, that other men use, that God has given to us and that willfulness. We might even be able to throw the word recklessness in there. And the biblical man is able to take those natural attributes that God has given to us that others use, that other men use to impose their will And they submit that tenacity. They submit that aggression unto the truths of God's word by faith. And this is the measure of a man of valor. Moses. Joshua. Let's talk next about Boaz. Boaz is an interesting one. Most of the men on this list, though I'm not... I'm not emphasizing these particular attributes. When the Bible calls them mighty men of valor, we recognize them as well to be great warriors. Moses, at least traditionally, was a great warrior, although we don't see him himself fighting many battles as it relates to the days of Israel. Joshua was certainly a great warrior. We're going to talk about David, pretty good warrior. Boaz is different. He was called a mighty man, Not a valor, but the same Hebrew phrase was used. The Hebrew phrase is gibor ha'il. And the gibor ha'il, often translated mighty man of valor, in Boaz's case, the same word, gibor ha'il, was translated mighty man of wealth. Boaz is not known to be a man of great physical fortitude and strength, but the Bible still called him a gibor ha'il. Not a leader of nations, Not a great warrior as Moses and Joshua, but a wealthy man in Bethlehem. Many servants working in his fields. What made him a mighty man of valor, a mighty man of wealth? What made him this kind of a man, a Gabor Chayil? He was a godly man. He was a man of generosity. He was a man of gentleness. He was a man of integrity. You perhaps know the account. Boaz, and we'll talk more about Ruth next week when we talk about biblical femininity. Boaz is observing the work in his fields one day when he sees a woman harvesting the gleanings. This meant she was a poor woman. She was impoverished. She was going behind the servants that actually gleaned in the field and took whatever scraps she could find, whatever pickings were left over. By law, Boaz's servants could not pick up anything they dropped. They had to be left for the poor people. Now, granted, I didn't mean they had to try to drop things. And so the gleanings might be better, might be worse, I suppose, depending on how good Boaz's servants were at their job, Right? By God's command, we see this mandate, and Ruth took that command to heart, and she was out in the field all day, getting enough for her and for her mother-in-law. Boaz sees this particular woman, sees her character, sees her work ethic, and inquires of her. His servant tells him that she was a Midianitish woman that had come back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, They were both widows and that Ruth was effectively gleaning for two, for her and for her mother-in-law. Boaz is filled with compassion, generosity, and he commands his workers to start leaving extra on the ground, to purposefully begin dropping what, what the Bible calls handfuls of purpose in order that she might be able to glean more and that they could have enough. Already we're beginning to see Boaz as a different kind of a man. Not necessarily the definition of a, of, of a strong businessman that we might see from the world around us. Here's a man who 
has compassion and begins to put himself at a disadvantage, however small, in order to help someone else in need. Naomi recognizes this mercy and recognizes in it recognizes in it an opportunity, seeing that Boaz could, by virtue of their family connection, be regarded as a near kinsman and so might be able to play the role of the biblical kinsman redeemer. One who could redeem Ruth and thus provide a household for her. Naomi instructs Ruth on the proper protocol in order to appeal to Boaz. She lies at his feet while he's sleeping, thus petitioning him to become her provider and her protector. We pick up during this event in Ruth 3, beginning in verse 9. And the Bible says this, And he, that would be Boaz, said, Who art thou? She answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. This is her asking him for help. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning." So Boaz tells Ruth that she has done well. He tells her not to fear that all that she requests he will do in response to her virtue. He tells her that he cannot simply become her kinsman redeemer because there's another man who has that right first and that duty first. It was a duty and another man actually is before him on that, in that duty. But that if that man would not exercise that duty, then Boaz would. In the circumstance, we see Boaz's valor. Why is he called a gibor chayil? We see it come to full force. Generosity. He gave liberally to this young woman and her mother in their time of need. Gentleness in his dealings with her as she petitions him for his help. And integrity. That he would not step outside of God's law in order to help her, but simultaneously he would go to the fullest extent of his capacity to see that she is helped. Tremendous graciousness in that Boaz is now taking upon himself this responsibility of seeing that Ruth's future is secured one way or another. As we trace the event at hand, we find that Boaz ends up playing the duty or playing the role of the kinsman redeemer for her. They have a child together, and that child's name is Obed. And Obed has a child whose name is Jesse, and Jesse has a child his eighth, whose name is David, and David is the great king of Israel. The biblical man is not the man who does what he wants, but rather the man who does what is right. The biblical man is not the man who takes what he wants, but rather the man who gives of what he has. The biblical man is not the man who succeeds at any cost, but rather the man who operates in the integrity of his heart, who tells the truth, whose words mean something, who is dependable, who is reliable, who is faithful. Boaz was a mighty man of valor because he was a man of God. He reflected his masculinity in his integrity and faithfulness to God and to this kinswoman. He reflected his masculinity in his generosity toward those who were deeply in need. He reflected his masculinity in his gentleness toward the weak and his clarity and initiative in accomplishing his purposes. These are traits of biblical masculinity. This is what it means to be a man. One more example from the Old Testament. Let's talk about David. Boy, we could go to so many others. I'd love to go to Jonathan. I really had a hard time leaving Jonathan off this list. I probably, I was tempted to put Jonathan on in place of David. Wanted to go to Ezekiel. Wanted to talk about Daniel. 
I wanted to talk about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's a lot of good examples of biblical masculinity. David is one of the most flawed characters in the biblical record. But that for one particular reason. The reason why David is so flawed is because we know most about him. Right? That it's not because he was any more flawed than these other guys, but rather it's because he's probably the most transparent guy in the Bible. We, we have his Psalms. We have, his, we have the history of, of, his, uh, of his life from early manhood through to his death. We've got a lot of years of his life and we have a tremendous amount of insight into his life. Because of this, we not only learn from David's positive attributes, but we learn from his negative ones as well. David, perhaps more than anyone on this list, if we were forming a list of men's men, David would probably be the man's man of men's men on this list, right? Uh, David had his mighty men, these were men that were under David, and those guys were some serious guys. I mean, those guys were killing hundreds, if not thousands of people with their bare hands. And those are just David's guys. That's not even David, right? David was the army general, the leader of men, the killer of giants, the killer of lions and bears. When he's describing to Saul why he thinks he could probably take on Goliath, he talks about grabbing animals by their manes and killing them, right? Bears and lions, that's, that's pretty serious stuff. But it was not for these things that God loved him. And in fact, he wasn't even to full manhood when he did those things. God loved him because of his tender heart before the Lord. God loved him for his humility and his submission to the word and the will of God. God loved him for his obedience. God loved him for his willingness to wait upon the Lord. God loved him for his tender heart in repentance when necessary. And I don't know that these attributes are expressed in any better way than in the account of David and Saul in the cave in the wilderness of Engedi. We don't go to David and Goliath here to define God's definition of masculinity. Though that would be a good one in that he faced down his foes in faith. We don't go to his time as a king, though there's plenty of good examples there as well, with some notable bad years in between. In this time of David's life, he is running for his life. He's got a band of misfits following him around the countryside. Political refugees, guys with charges over their heads, hanging over their heads, people who have been displaced from their own lands for one reason or another. So there's this band of misfits that have flocked to David as David is running for his life from the king of the nation over whom David had already been anointed king by Samuel. David's hiding in a cave. God has promised him that he would be king, that he would establish his throne. Saul has been trying to kill David in jealousy and in literal madness, like the guy was crazy, for some time now. So David is walking this line. God has said, I'm going to get the kingdom. I am a subject of the king of the kingdom currently, I'm going to be king, but there's right now another king. He's the anointed of the Lord. I'm the anointed of the Lord. I will be king one day, but he is still the anointed of the Lord. I still need to honor him, but he's trying to kill me. He wants me dead, but he's my direct authority. I want what the Lord wants for me. I want what the Lord has promised me. I need to obey my authority in the name of the Lord without dying. Tough spot. So imagine the shock 
perhaps the conflict in David's mind in the day when the cave that they are hiding in becomes the cave that Saul walks into unaccompanied one day. 1 Samuel 24, verse 2, the Bible says this, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. He went in to go to the bathroom. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So they're all standing in the sides of the cave. Saul's in there by himself asking for privacy because he's going to the bathroom. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. So they're saying this is the promise when God says, I will deliver your enemies into your hand. See, here's the problem. I've had this asked me before. Saul was not David's enemy. David was Saul's enemy. But Saul was not David's enemy. I had someone ask me a while ago, how can you say that that unbelievers are not our enemies when the Bible says to love your enemies. Just because someone has made you their enemy doesn't mean you have to make them your enemy. So David here has his men saying, this is the day where God says you will, be, you will overcome all your enemies. So David, the Bible says, arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. Cut off a portion of his robe. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David had... In masculine terms, the chance of a lifetime here. You want to invoke all of the... If you want to talk about the time when your power, when your opportunity would be absolute, this is the one. David kills Saul. He walks out of that cave with Saul's crown on his head, Saul's sword in his hand, and he says, I'm in charge now, and I guarantee you not one of those 3,000 men following Saul in the wilderness would have said, "Uh uh-uh. They would have said, yep, okay, you're the boss. David was their general not too long ago. David was a man well-respected. Saul has killed his thousands, and David, they said, among the cities, his ten thousands. David was a superstar. He could have walked out of that cave, demanded the army's loyalty, and, and, and walked right into Gibeah of Saul and said, I'm in charge now, and it would have been just fine with him from a material perspective. But here's the thing. That wasn't God's way. That wasn't, that's not God's way. Notice he doesn't say here, how could I do this thing to my enemy? He says, how could I do this to my master? How could I stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed? Remember at the beginning of this series, we founded it upon the reality that God's way is not man's way. That God's economy does not operate by the same rules of man's economy. That strength and honor and wisdom in the physical sense are not the operative attributes of God's servants. Just because a guy is big and strong doesn't mean God's going to use him. Just because a guy has a lot of brains doesn't mean that that God's going to use him. Just because a guy is rich doesn't mean God's going to use him. As a matter of fact, God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to bring about the power of changed lives. In fact, we go all the way back to the day that David was chosen. This is well before David was this man's man that we might think of him to be. When God saw him just as much of a man's man as he ever was. If we were to go back to 1 Samuel 16, 
God tells the prophet Samuel to go find out which of Jesse's sons or to go anoint one of Jesse's sons. So all of Jesse's sons, with the exception of one, stand before Samuel. And Samuel looks at the first son, Eliab. And we read this in Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. And it came to pass when they were come that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the, no the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The measure of a man has nothing to do with the number of days you've spent in the gym. Has nothing to do with the size of your bank account. Has nothing to do with how many logs you can carry across a, a big field. Has nothing to do with how well you can control a car when it's freewheeling in donuts on the, in the parking lot. Has nothing to do with whether or not you're the biggest. Has nothing to do with whether or not you're the smartest. Has nothing to do with whether or not you are the best or most dominant or most imposing, most skilled or most charismatic. The measure of a man in God's eyes is not about who would command the biggest armies or win in a battle. The measure of a man in God's eyes, the kind of man that God can use, the kind of man that God wants is the man who would face down the king who had made himself David's enemy, who would have him in his clutches at his mercy have every material advantage in destroying him, but restrain from doing so in an abject determination that he is going to obey God at any cost. That's a man. This is humility. This is faith. This is obedience. This is submission. This is meekness. This is a man in the eyes of God. This is what biblical masculinity looks like. And if I could wrap all of this into one word, it would be that word, meekness. We talk about meekness. We'll talk about it again next week with the virtuous woman. There's a lot of similarities between virtuous men and virtuous women, biblical femininity, biblical masculinity. They just work themselves out in different ways. The concept of meekness is strength under control. We've said that in any number of occasions. The ideas in the unbelieving world as it relates to masculinity are not inherently bad. Strength, tenacity, boldness, courage, determination, these are all wonderful things. But just having these attributes are not enough. If you have those attributes, it makes you uh, a guy. It makes you male. Many of these are come somewhat naturally to us in one form or another, not all in the same form. They don't always outwork themselves in the same way, but these things are natural. Aggression, that's something we guys, we, we have. I mean, it's a part of testosterone flowing through us. Tenacity, strength, boldness, courage, to some degree or another, we've got these things. These are attributes that are more natural to us. But having these attributes are not enough. The question is not whether you have these things, it's how you use them. Biblical masculinity, biblical meekness, taking your strength, your tenacity, your boldness, your aggression, your courage, your determination, your stubborn, unyielding nature, perhaps it may be, your personal confidences, which guys have a lot of those, right? They, they, they just have a lot of, yeah, I can do that. Taking that stuff and harnessing it, controlling it, directing it to the will of God, submitting yourself to the word of God. And when you've done this, you are a meek man. Then you are, by all biblical terms, a true man. You have found the ideals of biblical masculinity. In the New Testament, the idea of being a man comes up one time. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Watch ye, Paul would write. Stand fast in the faith. 
quit you like men. Be strong. Let all things be done, let all your things be done with charity. Paul closes the letter to the church at Corinth, effectively calling them to do the thing I called husbands to do this morning, which is grow up, be a man, take responsibility, and lead. See, the church of Corinth, out of 16 chapters of the Bible, 14 of them are rebuke. It's not a pleasant book. The church there, as they get to chapter 16 of what was, as they get to the end of the letter, are probably feeling kind of torn down. And as Paul is exhorting them, he says this, look, it's been a hard day for you. I've torn you down piece by piece. I've rebuked you. I've corrected you. Now it's time for you to do something about it. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Hold on to the faith. Be a man. Quit you like men. Act manly is literally the idea behind this word. Now we have any number of commands about obedience to the Lord which are directed toward men in the New Testament. We see God, uh, Paul exhorting Timothy not to have the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of sound mind, right? That he would, uh, uh, that he would uh, use well the gifts that the Lord had given to him, these sorts of things. We have the qualifications of the, the bishops and the deacons. We have the commands to husbands and fathers regarding how to deport themselves. We've talked about those in part. We'll talk more about them next week. But here we find this command that this group act manly. And notice what Paul is saying manly looks like. It means that they stand fast in the faith it means that they do all things charitably. Doesn't sound like your typical definition of masculinity. As it would bounce around in the world. The biblical man stands strong in the Lord. He resists the devil. He contends against error. He contends against evil. He fights for the spiritual life of his loved ones, for the well-being of his church, for the distinctions of truth in society. The biblical man is a man of action for the Lord. The biblical man is a man who is stalwart when he needs to be, but is doing all things fully enmeshed in charity, in love. He harnesses all of his natural capacities and his passions and his desires and all of those energies and all of that vision and he funnels it all through the desire of what the Lord would have for him and he furthers the kingdom of God. And what does a biblical man look like? Well, we have a good set of teachings on this in Paul's exhortations to Titus on sound doctrine. In Titus chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, the Bible says this, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Paul begins this passage by exhorting Timothy to teach sound doctrine. Then he talks about the elderly men. We'll get to them in a minute. When he gets to the portion about young men, these are the attributes which God says exemplify a sound young man. Now, in our culture, they're saying that boys don't even become men until around 30 now. They're saying that in those years in between, boys will be boys, which means they're going to be reckless. They're going to be heedless. They're going to be aggressive. They're going to be wasteful. They're going to be self-indulgent. They're going to be arrogant. They're going to be rebellious. And that this is just what boys do. Well, these are characteristics of boys. But Paul said, when I was a child, I th thought as a child, I understood as a child, I spake as a child, but when I became a man, 
I put away childish things. Young men don't look like little boys. Men in the faith have identified their passions, their strengths, their abilities. They have confidence. These things are there, but they are tempered by wisdom and driven by submission. When he gets to this portion about young men, these are the attributes which exemplify them. And fathers, take note of this. This is your biblical masculinity checklist. When your boy leaves the home, you want him to look like this. First, he is sober-minded, mature. He knows what is important. He knows those things which matter and those which don't. He has his head on straight. Second, he has a pattern of good works. His time is dedicated to serving others. He's strong in faith and in charity. He's providing for his own. He's helping those in need. He has an understanding that his strength and his gifts have been given to him as a funnel through which God to work. Channels only, the song says. Third, he has sound doctrine. He's grounded in faith. He will not be easily led astray by false teaching because he's grounded. Fourth, gravity. That word gravity in the Greek literally means integrity. He's a man of honesty. He's a man whose word means something. He's a man who does what he says he'll do. He's not backbiting. He's not cheating. He's not getting ahead at any cost. He's not taking advantage of others. Fifth, sincerity. He's genuine, authentic, especially in his faith. He does what he does for God. Sixth, sound speech. The capacity to express his beliefs, the ability to defend his beliefs. He's not engaged in locker room talk with the other guys. He's not using swear words as a means by which to add shock value to his speech because his words can't hold their own weight. His speech is sound. He's respectful. He's clear. He's a good testimony to others of truth in this life that those that are of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And if this is done right, then he will grow into a godly elderly man who will then be an example for the next generation. And that's what we need today. Those of you who are no longer young men, your job's not over. Not only for yourself, but for those among us, our young men who need more than ever to see biblical examples of what a man is, of what a man does. So Titus 2 began in verses 1 and 2 saying this, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Sober and grave. These are attributes intended to carry over from youth a seriousness of mind with regard to life, with regard to responsibility, with regard to faith. Grave, again, this word means having integrity. A man that is yet still truthful. A man that is yet still honest. Temperate. Self-control. This is one of those things that's very hard to master and comes from a life of discipline. Some people have a little bit more self-control and discipline than others. Some people are more balanced than others. But particularly a young, about, around young men, this is something that's going to take some time to develop. Temperance. Complete self-control. But this is what the world needs to see in our men. This is what our elderly men, our mentors need to be. They need to be men of self-control. This is what our boys need to see. Men of self-control, of restraint. Men of care. Men who, who are doing what they're doing deliberately. 
Sound in faith, sound in charity, sound in patience. These men become the anchor of their families and their churches and their societies because they're stable and they're sound. They have faith. Their years of experience have brought about in them a completeness of their faith. Whereas a young man says, I don't know what's going on, and he might be fearful. The old man can say, it's okay, I've been here before. I, 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 I know what you're going through. Let me just settle you down a little bit. So that when the young man says, let's just bolt forward, who cares about this, 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 the old man says, well, wait a minute. Hold up, pup. There's some things to think about first. We need both. We need the energy, the vigor, the passion of the young man. We need the considered sound faith and patience of the elderly man. We need them both. Charity. Men who have learned the importance of loving one another. Men who stand for truth but also help create that balance between the impulsive energy of youthly godliness and the necessary temperance of elderly godliness. Biblical masculinity. These masculine elders are the anchor of all Christian interaction and they lead the next generation into success. This is what we need. This is what our church needs. This is what our society needs. So practically speaking, what does this look like? Men today have no idea what it means to be a man. They spend their days watching television, playing video games, watching sports, becoming convinced that masculinity is about power, about skill, about taking what you want, about getting what you want. We now have a couple of generations of boys who have no idea what being a man truly is. To have ambition, to accomplish, to lead, to stand for something, to make decisions, to provide for themselves and their own. Our generation has been crippled by fatherless homes and permissive parenting, by participation trophies, by schools where 77% of teachers are female. And so... Our boys, in public schools in particular, are in a culture growing up raised almost entirely by women for the first 20 years of their lives, whether they're at school, whether they're at home. See, because we talked this morning about the fact that fathers have not been doing a very good job in the home. And then we wonder why they don't know how to be men. And the examples they do have are all about getting into trouble, exerting their dominance over the weak, taking whatever they can from others. But in the church, it must not be so. The word of God calls for men to deny not what they are, but to deny sin's desire to twist what men are for us to take advantage of it and turn our ambition and our strength and our power and our passion into into dominance rather than into servitude. We are not called to deny ourselves, but we are called to harness what God has made us and use it for His glory. Like those men that we studied tonight, like Moses, like Joshua, like Boaz, like David. Men who harnessed the natural capacities, who stepped out in faith, who were used of the Lord in tremendous ways because they had integrity, because they had passion, because they were principled, because they were selfless, because they were yielded, because they were gentle, because they loved God. What biblical masculinity looks like then is men who are determined to be men Not denying who you are, but to be men who are submitted. Meek men who have harnessed all of our strength unto God's ends. Men who are like Moses, selfless and yielded. Men who are like Joshua, principled and godly. Men who are like Boaz, having integrity, generosity and gentleness. Men who are like David, being tender, being obedient being patient, waiting on God's timing, doing it God's way, having the strength of character to stop and to wait 
not just to run like a bull through a china shop. Mighty men of valor, men determined to protect and to provide and to lead those who they love into the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Mighty men of valor, who will be the tip of the spear piercing into culture with the truths of God's word, with answers to their questions and conviction in their action, with purpose, not their own purpose that they conjured out of thin air just to make themselves feel better, but the purposes of God. Mighty men of valor who will stand fast against error and deceit and the attacks of the enemy. This is the measure of a man in the eyes of God. This is the measure of a man in the eyes of the only one whose eyes really matter. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.